H.R. McMaster is a soldier, scholar, and strategist. A graduate of West Point, he served in the U.S. Army for 34 years, earning a doctorate in history along the way, and retiring as a lieutenant general. From February 2017 until April 2018, he was President Trump's national security advisor. He's currently the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Stanford University, and also the Chairman of the Advisory Board of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. He's just published a new book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. He joins us for a wide-ranging and free-ranging discussion here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. HR, it's wonderful to be with you again, um, if only virtually. So I, look, I know you don't require flattery, but perhaps you might enjoy some. Uh, your new book is substantive, it's provocative, um, you know, often people leave big jobs and they write big books to show they're big thinkers, to justify themselves, to counter their critics, or just because they think, hey, it's time to write my memoirs. This book is not that. And before I let you answer, also, you write in your preface, and just about every review and interview has commented on this, many unhappily, that this is not the book that most people wanted me to write, because the book people wanted you to write would have been a gossipy tell-all about what Donald Trump says in private in the hope that what he's told you in private is even more unfiltered than what he says in public. So you had a different purpose in mind, and perhaps you should begin by telling us what it is you set out to do here. Well, th thank you so much, Cliff, and thanks for the great work that you and FDD do every day. I've learned so much, really, from, from my interactions with you and your team, and, and much of that is in the book. Much of the content that's in the book is is informed by the great work at, at FDD. So, you know, I, I really, what I wanted to do is I wanted to write something, a book that is useful to Americans. I thought, okay, you know, how's, how's another tell-all going to be helpful? And, and, and as we're at each other's throats these days, and with the vitriolic partisan discourse that we see every day, you know, the world hasn't gone away, and we face really crucial challenges to our future security and, and, and prosperity and our influence in the world. So what I hope to do with the book, Cliff, is to, is to foster a better understanding of the challenges we face and to set really conditions for a, a meaningful civil discourse about the discussion of those, of those challenges and to help recommend where, what we can do to build a better future for generations to come. And the book is intended for whomever is in the Oval Office, not just now, but for the foreseeable future. I, I, I hope so. And, and, and uh, the, you know, the, the approach I took, Cliff, is to, I'm a historian, obviously, you know, so I, I think the first step in understanding uh, these, these complex uh, challenges is to, is to explore how the past produced the present. Right. As, as, as the, the first step of then making a projection in, into the future. So 
in, in each of these in, on each of these subjects, whether it's a you know whether it's the threat from the Chinese Communist Party, whether it's it's Putin's campaign of uh, of sustained subversion against uh, the, the United States and the West, whether it's the I think the increasing threat from jihadist terrorist organizations or the hostility of Iran or, or North Korea or you know these emerging threats in, in, in cyberspace and associated with disruptive technologies and, and other problems we face like you know, you know, climate uh, and, and energy and, and uh, related problems. Uh, you know, I think that, that, that take, try to take that same approach. How did, this, how did this challenge develop? And then what's the projection into the future and how can we, you know, how, how can we advance and protect our interests? I want to get into as much of that as we can. And, and there's a lot of meat, wonky meat, but meat, meat in the book. But two questions quickly before we do, because I think people are interested and curious. Tell us how, how you were recruited for what's formally called the, uh, the, the, the position of assistant to the president for national security affairs. Well, I think a number of people uh, gave the president my name and you know, I was walking down Walnut Street, my hometown of Philadelphia, on, on my way to it. Another another great think tank. I think that we all have good relations with uh, FPRI, sure. and I was going to give a talk there on on Russian New Generation Warfare. The results of a study that I had commissioned eighteen months prior in my job as as a lieutenant general who was charged with designing the future army. And and uh, and my phone rang, and it was a partially blocked two hundred two number saying, "Hey, you know, this, this is on a Friday on President's Day weekend. Can you come to Mar-a-Lago tomorrow to interview with the president?" Uh, for uh, for national security advisors, so it kind of came out of the out of the blue for me, Cliff, and I wound up going down there on Sunday. And soon after I landed in in uh, in, in you know Palm Palm Beach Airport, there uh, I, I uh, was in a room with the president, interviewing for the job, and he held me over till the next day. Uh, myself and, and Ambassador Bolton, uh, whom I awkwardly ran into in the in the men's room, they were trying to keep us separate, but but we did bump <laughs> into each other. <laughs> I won't make it go into the room too uh, in any depth in this occasion. And then we, uh, and then we, um, after that interview, the, the president hired me. I flew back with him on Air Force One. Uh, I was living in Tidewater, Virginia. I had never been assigned to Washington Cliff across my thirty-four year Army career, and so um, yeah, they they flew me down uh, after we landed at Edwards uh, Air Force Base, and then I and then I, I flew back the next day and I started Tuesday afternoon. So he hired me on Monday. I walked into the West Wing Tuesday afternoon and just dove into the job. This I found interesting, too. A lot of people, would seem to me, they get the job, they say, okay, I know what i got to do, National Security Advisor. I've, uh, I've followed many. You thought through rather carefully what you considered to be the proper role, the proper duties of a National Security Advisor. I mean, you, you thought about that and you made a decision about how you were going to approach this job and what it is you were going to do for the president. And it may not be what most people would expect. Well, you know, Cliff, the Army get, gave me this great gift, right? They allowed me to serve my country in uniform and, and to, you know, to, to lead soldiers and build teams, but then also to go to graduate school and study history and then teach at West Point. And the topic that I, I chose for my dissertation, thanks to Casey Brower, uh, now retired uh, Breeder General Casey Brower, who was the acting head of the history department that year, I chose Vietnam and how and why Vietnam became an American war. So I was able to look at really a, a, a flawed a national security decision-making process and the development of, of a fundamentally flawed strategy for war and to glean some lessons from that. And then, of course, it, I had to place that in comparative perspective. So I looked at national security decision-making since really since the, since the end of World War II, the beginning of the Cold War, 
And so I, I was able to bring that, that that knowledge into the job. You know, Peter Robbins' book, Presidential Command, was one of my favorites, right? And and uh, it was funny, uh, as I was packing, you know, to get back on the Ospreys, you know, and fly back to Washington on that Tuesday, my son-in-law was there. I tell the story in, in, in Battlegrounds, and I'm pulling books off my, my shelf. And, and my, my son was like, why are you taking all these books with you? And I said, well, you know, it, I think it's important as you go into any job to study the history of that position. And, and so I, I brought with me, you know, an appreciation for, for the job. It's, it's, I don't think anybody's prepared for a job of that scope and responsibility, but I, I felt that I, I, w- I, I was relatively well prepared. And then, and then what I did soon after taking the job, Cliff, is I, I called every living uh, former national security advisor and got their advice. And that was super helpful. I spent two hours with Brent Scowcroft. Oh, man, it was great. He was really on. I mean, we had a great conversation. Uh, but then all of them were very gracious to me. And I, I enjoyed our conversations tremendously. I went to Colin Powell's house. And as you know, I was, at, at the time, I was you know, a geographic bachelor. My, my wife was, was uh, in, in Tidewater, Virginia, finalizing the plans for our daughter's, our daughter's wedding. <laughs> so it wasn't a good time to move. So she, she didn't move until till a couple months later. And, uh, and so, you know, I, on my own, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty helpless, I think. And I wasn't eating. I was starving. I went to Colin, <laughs> Colin Powell's house. I like ate everything in sight, man. He was, yeah, I think he was appalled. And, uh, <laughs> I have to, he said, I have to have you back more often, you know, to just to feed you. But, uh, but, all, but all, all of them were, were, were very gracious. Jim Jones, what a, what a gem of a guy he is. I mean, he, he convened former national security advisors on several occasions. Um, Henry Kissinger came to visit me the first, the first week. <laughs> and uh, one of the questions I asked him, I said, Dr. Kissinger, how do you, how do you carve out time to, to read and to think deeply about issues and everything in this job? And he just looked at me and he said in his accent, you know, in this job, you cannot. He said, in this job, you will not create any new knowledge you will consume the knowledge you have already. <laughs> now, now, of course, I was learning. I was learning every day, obviously, in the job. But I think what he was alluding to is it's a fast-paced job. Yeah, and and I was grateful that you know I'd been a student of of, of foreign policy and 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 national security, and uh, and I think that that put me in decent stead. And this made an impression on me and that you decided that you weren't going to simply tell the president, so here's what I advise you to do in this situation. You are going to present the president with options. It's kind of like what a think tank does. Now, I'm not going to say that a think tank, at least the ones I'm familiar with, never say, here are your three options, sir, to whoever we're advising, um, and we're, uh, they're all equally good. We, we're likely to say we think option A is the best, option B is not bad, we think option C will lead to terrible things, but we lay out the options because that's useful. And, and I don't think every national security advisor does that. I think a lot of them think I'm here to persuade the president that I know the right answer. But you were more, look, it's up to him to make the decisions. Let me try to inform him of what the, of what the possibilities are, what the risks are, and what the opportunities are, and then he'll make the choice. Well, you know, I, th- I think service in our army, if it teaches you anything, it's, it's, it's to have a degree of humility to recognize that you don't know everything, right? So unless you're omniscient, you, you have to you have to rely on the on the perspectives and expertise of others and 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 across my career whenever I co- you know, confronted complex uh, problems and challenges it was always extremely useful for me to convene an interdisciplinary group right to 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 frame that problem be- before deciding what to do and and so I, I what I tried to do is put into place a process that would achieve that we we began Cliff with a with a principal small group framing session that we convened around what we initially identified as 16 
first order challenges to our to our national security. You know, of course, if you don't set priorities, right, everything's a priority. Right. So we had to we had to identify, you know, what were our top 16 uh, challenges. And then we began with this framing session, which I think was immensely useful. Typically in Washington, and I don't want to overgeneralize because it varies between administrations and national security advisors, but it's a, it's a bottom-up process, right? And, and what happens is you get the equivalent at the policy coordinating committee level, which is kind of the assistant secretary level that comes together. You get the equivalent of something like Iran discuss, right? And then, then you have then you have a you know a, kind of an aimless discussion about about Iran and and maybe our interests are are, are are at the top of that discussion and maybe there's the establishment of goals and objectives maybe there's an understanding of the situation on its own terms but but typically what happens is that bottom-up process results in a lot of satisfying behavior a lot of movement to lowest common denominator and what it produces more often than not I think is policy pablum I mean just meaningless mm-hmm. documents so mm-hmm. so with this framing session we, we had them around a really succinct five-page paper the, the, the paper described the, the challenge, the national security challenge, on its own terms. Uh, we posed most of these in the form of a question. For example, how to stabilize Iraq and ensure that Iraq is not aligned with Iran, right? Simple question. It gets you, it gets you to the framing. Then there's a description of that, of that challenge on its own terms. And then what we did is we identified the vital U.S. interests that were at stake, viewed that situation through the lens of those vital interests, established an overarching goal and more, more specific objectives. And then, quite importantly, identified assumptions. Assumptions especially concerning the degree to which we and like-minded partners had agency and influence over this complex problem. And then we inventoried obstacles to progress uh, as well as opportunities that we could exploit. And that was it, right? Then that paper ended. We, 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 this, the National Security Council staff didn't develop this. This was developed collaboratively, right, with really policy planning at state taking the lead on it. But but so, so everybody already had a degree of buy-in. And then we, I would just ask the principals in, in the principals committee meeting, hey, what do you think? Is this right? And that discussion was rich in that it gave guidance to the policy coordinating committee who was listening in on this and, and got the summary of, of, the, of the meeting. Uh, and then, and then that dis- once that discussion refined the framing, then we stopped and said, okay, next part of the meeting is, okay, what are your ideas? What are your ideas about how we integrate elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners to overcome the obstacles to progress, to take advantage of the opportunities, and, and, and to move toward the accomplishment of our objectives? And then that was always a rich discussion. When you have you know, the Secretary of the Treasury saying, you know, uh, we, we, could, we could employ financial actions um, or impose sanctions, but, but those would really be best if, we, if they were accompanied by a, a broad diplomatic effort that got like-minded countries to do something similar. And then, and so you, you hear these kind of ideas and, 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 and the emphasis is on how do we integrate our efforts? How do we ensure that what each of the departments and agencies are doing are synergistic? We identify what actions are, are simultaneous, which ones are, are sequential and build upon each other. And then, then I'll tell you, the policy coordinating committee can run with that and they can draft an integrated strategy and an integrated strategy that we insisted be presented, as you alluded to earlier, with multiple options for implementation. Options that were differentiated by level of resources, risk, amount of time, and so forth. And then, then that gave me an opportunity where right? I brought the framing to the president. He's, he, he would approve it or modify it. And then and then the cabinet memo would go out and, hey, our policy was changing already, right? Department agencies were already kind of turning the ship in a certain direction. And then, and then, and then later on, we would present the, the options to the president. He would make a decision. 
it was it was a very effective process. You know, and of course, the conventional wisdom of that, you know, the, of the Trump administration was it was you know, super chaotic and everything. And you know, to a certain extent, it was, it was right. And I can't speak to what happened after I left. But I'll tell you, in those 13 months, we got a lot done with that. And I guess I'm sorry to go on about it, but I guess the point is that that I think we were able to do that in large measure because we were informed by history. We, 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 we have learned from previous experience and applied that previous experience to the development of a process that I think served the president well. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put aside the title of your book for a second. I'm going to come back to it. But I'm going to start here with the subtitle of your book, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Two assumptions in that. One, that there still is a free world. And, and, and two, that the free world requires defending. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. I can go on, but I, but I want to point out those two assumptions in your right, subtitle. Right. Well, there is a free world, right? And, 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 and there's a free world because our government and other democracies are in, in, in our countries, the people have a say in how they're governed. The people have the ability to demand better uh, from elected officials if they're unhappy. Uh, with, with policies, and if they're un, unhappy with, uh, you know, with their with their lives and what govern the role of government in, in in their lives, and and I think that's an important an important uh, important uh, element that distinguishes us from authoritarian regimes, uh, especially when you look at China and and uh, you know Russia, where where there are elections. Elections do matter to a certain extent, or else Putin wouldn't spend so much time trying to rig them. Uh, but but uh, but 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 in, in other autocratic regimes where the people have no say in how in how they're governed, and and I think you know as we have all these doubts about our democracy here these days, let's be like let's celebrate that at least, right? And then and then recognize though that our democracies are under duress. They're under duress, really, by I, I think factions within our democracies mm-hmm. that are moving to moving to extremes, moving to extremes because they're dissatisfied but also moving to the extremes because they're more and more susceptible to an information environment that, that moves us away from each other. And I'm, I'm talking really about social media, the avarice of these companies and the associated algorithms that are meant to get more clicks and more advertising money by showing people more and more extreme information. It also has to do with our, the pseudo media and even, you know, even our mainstream media now in which really Americans of a, of a certain political predilection watch one channel and, and Americans of, of, of another political predilection watch a different channel. And then they're developing in their minds two different realities of, of the situation in the country. And so we're, we're missing, we're missing that commonality of, of understanding. And also that's eroding our, com- our common understanding of who we are as a people. It's eroding our confidence, our democratic principles and institutions and processes. So I, I write about this in the book under this, this sort of heading of strategic confidence or and, and, and the need to rebuild our confidence. I think in part, we have to do that by being more competent in foreign affairs as well. And that's what the bulk of the book is about. But, the, but there's a real threat. We, it is a fight. It's a fight internally, but it's a fight against really you know, all forms of, of aggression that are meant to undermine that confidence. And we see Russia is super adept you know, in getting better uh, at exploiting the divisions in our society. Okay, let's that now we can go to the title, Battlegrounds. And what struck me there is battlegrounds plural. And there are and you and you you go into, and I hope we'll have a chance to discuss as many as we can, the various battlegrounds on which we are fighting, and I think you believe 
must fight and must fight more effectively. I, there are some who would say, look, we can't fight so many enemies. We have to concentrate on only a few and ignore the rest. Uh, that, am I wrong <laughs> to say that's like saying, you know, this river has piranhas and crocodiles and hippos. Um, so if you're going to go for a swim, I'd say, you know, worry about the crocodiles and the hippos. But if you leave the piranhas alone, uh, they w- I'm sure they won't take notice of you. And that's probably not, you're probably not going to leave the water uh, unmolested. Right, right. I, I agree. You know, if you're, if you're a global power, as we are with global interests, that you can't just be selective and say, okay, I'm only going to worry about this one thing. And, and I, I'm worried about this now because you know, maybe, maybe I was part of this problem. I don't know. But when we, when we published the, the, uh, the president approved the, the December 2017 National Security Strategy that uh, you know, our friend uh, Dr. Nadia Shadlow really did an amazing job with to get that done, I think, for the first time in any administration in the first year of, an, of a presidency. Um, it, it, we, we emphasized the need to compete. And we also recognize the need to compete uh, against revisionist powers on the Eurasian landmass, China and, and Russia. The, def- the national defense strategy, because we coordinated with the Pentagon every step of the way on the national security strategy, reflected that. But I think you know, in the Pentagon, sometimes I think their motto is, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. Right. <laughs> so, so, so I think that there are many who want to just say, OK, well, let's forget the painful experience of Afghanistan and Iraq, the unanticipated length. And, Difficulty of these wars. Let, let's forget that you know that that we have to remain engaged against jihadist terrorists, uh, or, or else they're going to develop the strength and have the freedom of action to maybe commit another mass murder attack along the lines of of, of 9/11 or or uh, some other form of, of egregious attack against us, and pivot like move move toward just great power competition. But you know I think we have to recognize the fact that our adversaries are going to try to fight us asymmetrically. They're not going to. They're not going to, to come up directly against our strengths. So I'm worried that we are maybe being too selective. But to your earlier point, there are people, people are tired, right? And they're thinking, okay, we don't really need to, you know, to, to, to commit so much force at, with such a level of effort and such an expensive effort. But that's not what I, I call for in battlegrounds. And I don't think that's what's necessary. I, I think that what we need is something in between this kind of, I guess it's a bit of a neo-isolationist movement that calls for our disengagement from the world as as an unmitigated good, and and what some sort of set up as a straw man, like kind of an absolutist approach to you know to nation building and trying to rework, create the world in our own image, right? This is what you know the so-called realist school, which is really it's really an ideological school. Mm-hmm. This is the straw man they set up of liberal hegemony, right? That we're trying to you know that we're trying to pursue liberal hegemony in the world. Uh, I think what we need is just a clear-eyed view of you know what is at stake, right? What what are the, what are the nature of these challenges? What is at stake for us, and what can we do that's that, that, that's rational, right, and yeah. and logical, uh, and and relatively low cost uh, for for us to to to, to protect our country, um, and to do it alongside like-minded partners. I think this this is a really important theme in the book is that is that you know a lot of times we get out a lot out of a little effort because we have like-minded partners. Afghanistan cliff, I think, is an example of this. You know, there's a big drive to. To, to withdraw and to cover our withdrawal uh, by actually partnering with the Taliban like against the Afghan government. It's really, I think it's a travesty what's happening. And, and I think it's worth noting, you know, that, that we are still making sacrifices in Afghanistan. Ten of our incredibly courageous you know, soldiers have been killed in action this year. But it's, it's also worth noting that about 30 Afghan soldiers and police 
are killed in action every day, every day, protecting the freedoms that they've enjoyed uh, since 2001 and, and, and doing their best to prevent the Taliban from reinstating you know, the brutality uh, of, of Sharia uh, that, they, that they had in, in place from 1996 to 2001. You know, it, it occurs to me, General, that there was a certain simplicity to the Cold War. Um, there was reasonable amount of buy-in, um, both among Republicans and Democrats, right and left. Not entirely, but reasonable. And the goal, and there was a goal. The goal was to contain, maybe roll back, maybe maybe defeat the Soviet Union. But that would be at some point in the indefinite future, very indefinite, because I mean, the Cold War was what is now being called a forever war, an endless war, at least as far as anyone knew. I, you know, I was a graduate student at Columbia University's Russian Institute sometime in the previous century. And I could say not one of my professors ever raised the possibility that the Soviet Union might collapse in their lifetime or, 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 or mine. That's not exactly a question, but I think, but I think you know, what, what I'm getting at is, 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 is that it's more complex. This is what we're doing now. What, you, what you're trying to sketch out a, a strategy for dealing with in the book and your national security strategy uh, that Nadia Shadow helped you write, which was so good, is this idea that it, this is a more complex world than the Cold War world was. David Colcollin, a friend of ours, also a soldier and scholar advisor to FDD, wrote a book called Dragons and Snakes, right? A description of our enemies uh, based on a, a quote from Jim Woolsey, also a former FDD chairman, who called Soviet, the Soviet Union a dragon we had slain, but whose demise gave rise to snakes that are no less right. missing. Right, right. And now we have both, right? And, and, and I think yeah, Dave Cocon's book is a, is a great is a, is a great description of this and how this has evolved. Uh, you know, the, the challenges have evolved in ways where we have myriad challenges to our security that that we have to cope with it, it, with with a very high degree of, of strategic competence. And uh, and that's I think that's one of the the key themes of the book is that we we've lost our competence. I think in large measure, Cliff, because we've swung from a period of, of really over optimism and complacency associated with it. In the 1990s, right after the in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, as as well as uh, in the in the you know the wake of the Gulf War and the lopsided victory there, and and it's, and we swung from that, which was kind of a setup in many ways for the difficulties we encountered in the 2000s, to pessimism and resignation, uh, particularly I think during the Obama administration, an administration that came in defining its foreign policy mainly uh, as a policy in opposition uh, to the Iraq War and the president's opposition to the Iraq war and the associated belief that our disengagement from, from complex problem sets overseas, particularly in the Middle East, was an unmitigated good. But I think what the ensuing years showed is that just when you think, hey, it can't get worse in the Middle East, for example, you know, it does, and it can. And, and, uh, and Vice President Biden's call to, to President Obama in December of 2011, in which he says, thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war, well, of course, wars don't end when one side disengages, and 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 the release of prisoners, Maliki's sectarian policies, because we not only disengaged from Iraq militarily, but we disengaged really diplomatically as well, and and that gave that gave rise to again uh, large scale sectarian violence, which then helped re you know, re recreate Al Qaeda in the form of ISIS. Yeah, and by 2014, you have ISIS in control of territory the size of Britain. You have a humanitarian catastrophe of colossal scale, a migration crisis that 
that uh, that that is that 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 is uh, significant in terms of the humanitarian dimension, but also the political crisis it causes in large measure in Europe. So I mean, these these problems just don't stay where they where where they originate. They get bigger, and and oftentimes they get bigger because our disengagement allows them allows them to grow uh, without any any corrective measures being put in place or countermeasures being put in place early. Before we talk or talk more deeply about the, the various battlegrounds in your book, there are three concepts you you didn't uh, that you develop I would say in, in this book. Um, and I think it's probably useful the listeners to foreign policy um, to f- to familiarize th- these listeners with these concepts. And the three I have in mind, you probably know, but I'll say there are strategic narcissism, strategic empathy, and strategic competence. Three, I think those are important concepts to understand and lenses through which to to see foreign policy and national security. Well, th- thanks, Cliff. Strategic narcissism is, is a term I'm using to describe our tendency to define the world only in relation to us and to con- consider really what we do as, as determining the outcome. And the problem with strategic narcissism is it grants no influence, agency, or authorship over the future to rivals, adversaries, enemies. It fails to recognize that, that our rivals and adversaries have real aspirations of their own that go far beyond only our actions and, and, and how they respond to us. And what happens is strategic narcissism then results, I think, in wishful thinking, mirror imaging, and self-delusion uh, in connection with policies and, and strategies. The corrective that, I, that I, I recommend is a term I borrowed from a great historian named Zachary Shore, whose books, uh, Blunder and A Sense of the Enemy, I think are, are immensely important to read. The Sense of the Enemy is the book in which he introduces the term strategic empathy. Strategic empathy, it, it really means to pay, really, it's a call to, to pay particular attention to the ideology, the emotions, and the aspirations that drive and constrain the other. And I had this concept in mind when I came in as National Security Advisor. And what we, what we did is we, we integrated this into these framing sessions I mentioned. And what I found is that a lot of our policies have been based on flawed assumptions because we failed to consider the ideology and the emotions and aspirations that drive and constrain the other. China, I think, is a great example of this, right? We assumed, again, kind of mirror imaging right? and, and wishful thinking and self-delusion that, that uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, once China had been welcomed into the international order, would play by the rules, would liberalize its economy, and over time, as it prospered, it would, it would liberalize its form of governance. Well, it's not going to do that, right? And the reason it's not going to do that is because the party is driven by the primary desire to maintain its exclusive grip on power and is, in fact, extending and tightening its, its grip on power uh, because it fears losing control. And, and, uh, and, and of course, that's, that, same desire, that same desire is related to its foreign policy as well and the narrative of national rejuvenation. And, and how increasingly aggressive China has become in exporting its authoritarian mercantilist model. So by, by examining what is, what is driving and constraining the other, we were able to put into place a new set of, of I think, much more realistic assumptions uh, and base our policy on those assumptions. And that's, that's a theme in the book. So you know, every chapter, really, every part of the book, anyway, uh, examines the, the, the implicit and and typically flawed assumptions on which previous policies were based, 
and then then examines what 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 is the ideology what, what are the what are the aspirations the emotions that drive and constrain the other what are a new set of assumptions and then and then the book makes recommendations about what our policies should be right and, and i think i think correct me if i'm wrong that strategic narcissism which we suffer from and a lack of strategic emphasis empathy reflects also a sort of lack of imagination i mean if all our our, our main adversaries, whether it's Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Ayatollah, Ali Khamenei, Kim Jong-un, the various self-proclaimed jihadis that lead non-state terrorist groups, they think differently than we do and differently than our European allies do. Americans and Europeans, to a great extent, we want to solve problems. We want to find common ground. We want to find a path to peace and prosperity because who doesn't want peace and prosperities? Right. And that and prosperity, and I, I don't think that's the way our enemies view the world. They want to strengthen their positions. They want to weaken us. They couldn't care less about solving problems. You know, Putin didn't go into Syria to solve problems there. He went into Syria to prop up a friendly dictator and get himself a warm water port on the Mediterranean. Obama didn't understand that. So Obama says to Putin, you're getting yourself into a quagmire. I got to think that Putin laughed. He knew that Obama didn't understand him and was kind of out of his depth in this. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, if you don't mind me plugging it, you know, kind of what is now an old book. Yeah. <laughs> in, I know in, what you're going to say. Go ahead. In, 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 in Derelicts to Duty, yeah, I wrote about how why Vietnam became an American war. And a big part of that story clip goes right to your point here. It, it, and this is mirror imaging and the kind of self-delusion about, uh, about how an adversary might react. Hmm. Uh, in the, in the run-up to the Vietnam War, I, I went through all the old documents that underpinned this, the strategy of graduated pressure. And, and one of those, uh, authored by, uh, by John McNaughton, who is a Harvard Law School professor, um, in, this, in this book, he refers to the reasonable man of English common law. And, and then in the, in the paper, assumes that Ho Chi Minh, he makes this explicit connection between the reasonable man of English common law and Ho Chi Minh, mm. and and essentially argues that Ho Chi Minh, when confronted with you know with 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 bombing uh, of, of Hanoi, uh, just you know, just I mean not massive bombing, uh, but but then but also then with the threat of more to come, would alter his behavior and in fact would cut off support for Vietnamese communist forces in the south. Well, it completely discounted the way the way that Ho Chi Minh viewed the conflict in, in Vietnam, and the hyper nationalist and and communist ideology that that, that that drove him, and and also associated with that the willingness to sacrifice, <laughs> the willingness to to sacrifice that was much different maybe uh, than, than 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 how John McNaughton uh, viewed it. John McNaughton, by the way, you know, a committed public servant who sadly was killed in a. In a, in a helicopter crash uh, later in in, uh, in Vietnam, so I'm I'm not trying to criticize him personally. I'm just saying that this is a, you know, that this is a this is not a new phenomenon uh, for for us, and and it's important to to really put guard against it, right? And this is why bringing people together with interdisciplinary perspectives, bringing people into these discussions who have real area expertise, who have knowledge of the history and the culture and the the, the, the social dimensions of, of a particular country. Uh, the, the psychology of the, of the of the particular leaders. I mean, all this is very important to I think effective policymaking. Yeah. In regard to China, I mean, it, I, I should we should note 
this was a major contribution, I think, of yours that we had had on a bipartisan basis through lack of strategic empathy, empathy and too much strategic narcissism, this absolute belief in the idea that if China became wealthy and if we helped China become wealthy, and if China was encouraged to be involved in the so-called liberal rules-based international order, China would liberalize and moderate. That's, that's, there would be a natural evolution. It had to happen that way. And, and we refused for a long time to see that that is not the case at all, that getting wealthy did not mean that people of China were going to be given more political, more, more freedom, um, that they demand it, that, that it would have to happen. In terms of international organizations in the UN, what we've been seeing is that's a battleground for China. They're figuring out how do they take over the key international organizations, whether it's the World Health Organization, whether they, they attempted and didn't succeed, the World Intellectual Property Organization, uh, UN Human Rights Council, China is about to be voted on as it is incarcerating uh, Uyghurs, as it is, it is oppressing Tibetans, as it is breaking its uh, treaty obligations on Hong Kong. It will be elected by the UN General Assembly in a few days to the UN Human Rights Council. Um, they, they're taking, trying to take over the international liberal rules-based order, write their own rules, and have us be the odd man out. And, and actually, I think uh, that they've been succeeding rather well at this project. Right. They've been succeeding in large measure because we vacated those, those contested spaces you know, on the belief that, that there was a prize for membership in these international organizations, right? But no, actually, as you mentioned, I mean, these, these are competitive spaces. The person who really got that and did an extremely effective job was uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley when yeah. she was at the yeah. I mean, she recognized that it was a competitive space, and I think she did an amazing job in, for example, uh, getting the U.S. Security Council to approve unprecedented sanctions against North Korea. You know, And so we can compete when we want to. That's an example of it. Uh, recently, China tried to take over the international organizations that, that is responsible for establishing standards for intellectual property. I'm talking about like letting the fox in the in the hen house. You know? <laughs> I mean, and so, so thanks to a concerted effort, you know, by by the U.S. and like-minded countries, we were able to stop that. But still, as you mentioned, you know, many other organizations. The subversion of the World Health Organization has been an obvious one. Uh, the International uh, Civil Aviation Organization is another example. Remember, I mean, even even uh, Interpol. You know, yeah. they, they got the head of Interpol until they arrested him uh, and made him a political prisoner uh, when he when he was back in China. So, so I, I mean, I, I think that there is. There's a recognition now that we have to compete. There's a tough choice to make a lot of times. UN Human Rights Council, right, is a farce, right? It's all the worst human rights violators are on it, right? So, so we decided to withdraw because we didn't want to give it the credibility of our membership. And that's always the tough choice, right? Do you, do you, do you pull out of it because it's just become a farce? Uh, or do you fight? Do you fight to, uh, you know, to, to make sure that, it can, that organization can remain true to its purpose? And um, and I think I think you have to make each of these decisions based on the merits of each case, but uh, but it, you're right. Is these are, these are competitive battlegrounds? I think as well. Uh, I, I mentioned a few of them, a few of them in the book, but uh, but I think this is not going to change. And um, but I, I think hopefully, I hope I hope, Cliff. I mean that that based on the really aggressive actions of both the Russians, you know, the poisoning of Navalny, 
um, is, is one, it's just another egregious example of Putin's blatant disregard for, you know, for, for international law, rule of law. And then, and then China's, you know, increasingly aggressive actions now, uh, in the midst of a, of a pandemic, you know, the, the, the wolf warrior diplomacy, which adds insult to injury of their repression of the news of the, of, of, of COVID-19, the, uh, you know, the, the national security law and the repression of human freedom in, in Hong Kong. Uh, the, the attacks on the Indian border and the bludgeoning to death of Indian soldiers on the Himalayan frontier, the pursuit of the largest land grab in history, if they get away with it, in the South China Sea, uh, the threats to Taiwan, cultural genocide in Xinjiang. Okay, hey, what more do you need, everybody? The massive cyber attacks against our medical research facilities in the midst of a pandemic. All, all sorts of uh, atta- attacks, uh, cyber attacks on Australia across the public mm-hmm. and private sector. Right. I mean, like wherever it is, do you need? But still, it's it's amazing to me how how much we are prone to self-loathing in the West. You know, and, and how, you know, when you see a poll in Europe that says, yeah, I, I don't know, we might we might trust uh, Xi Jinping or Putin as much as or even more than than Donald Trump or, you know, or, you know, the, the, we, we just trust the Americans. It's, like, God, you know, it's time. It's t- past time to wake up to the fact that. You know that the, the free world is bound together by by common principles and values, and, and we have to work together effectively, and 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 uh, and really recognize that that this is not a problem. The China problem is not a problem between the U.S. and China. I mean, think of what I just ran down there. I mean, this is a problem between the free world, and that's what the subtitle of the book is about. I and mean, we have to work together on these problems because you know we'll be the losers. Uh, the world will become a less free less safe and less prosperous place uh, if these if these authoritarian regimes win. I, I totally agree with you. And here's the dilemma I see. Our allies, particularly in, in Europe, um, have not been over a long period of time contributing to the collective security. Um, various presidents have said, we really need you to at least, at least spend more. And they've said, yeah, we know we should, we will. Uh, ask us again, but then they don't. President Trump has alienated and antagonized uh, our European allies, but he has gotten them to cough up a little bit, at least a little bit more money. On the other hand, they are not being very good allies, or really good allies at all, vis-a-vis the Islamic Republic of Iran. They're angry because President Trump pulled out of the uh, the Iran deal, the JCPOA, uh, which they continue to insist would have solved the problem of the Islamic Republic of Iran. It wouldn't have. They see themselves more as mediators with China rather than on, totally on our side with China. Um, in terms of Russia, you've got Germany becoming more dependent on Russia. So one question is, can we get our allies to do more? Because I do think that's an important thing if we're going to take on all these various enemies and adversaries in these various uh, battlegrounds. Do we need maybe to reimagine NATO for the purposes of the 21st century? Mm-hmm. Is that the way to do it? But also, how do we get them to do more? Because we can't do it all on our own. And too often, I think the Europeans think, look, we don't believe in the use of military force. We believe in diplomacy. And, we ha- and, the, and it's the Americans' job anyhow, not our job to be militarily uh, competent and proficient and go to war when they need to, and then we'll denounce them for it. And, let it all pass. You see what I'm. You see what I'm getting at, right? Well, you know, Cliff. There, there are wide. There's a wide range of views. A wide range of views across Europe, right? And 
And there's, there's a big difference, right, between certain countries in terms of, and their attitude toward defense and to the transatlantic relationship. But I think it's in our interest to take a, a bit of a shift you know, away from what has been the Trump administration's approach to see the EU primarily as a competitor. Sure, it's a competitor in the areas of trade and, and other issues, but it really is, it really is an, an ally, right? I mean, that, that, we, that we have to work together with on these big issues of maybe unfair you know, Chinese trade and economic practices and industrial espionage, for example. Um, and, and if the US and Europe and Japan work together on these economic issues in particular, I mean, how can we lose, right? We can't, we can't lose. The only, the only way we can lose is if China, for example, can play divide and conquer with us. Mm. And so, so I think, you know, I think the best, you know, the, the, uh, the greatest asset we have to, to help us come together is uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin in Russia. I think we can, <laughs> I think we can, I think we can count on them to bring us back together. <laughs> and, and we just have to, you know, we, we just have to be maybe patient and, and, uh, and persistent. Uh, in clarifying our, our mutual interests, you know, you know, reinforcing the fact that we're bound together by common principles and, and values, um, and and and, uh, and and just foster the the working relationships that, that I think are are maybe as strong as ever. Right? There's a, there's a lot of noise among political elites, maybe, and in the media, but when the when you have to really roll up your sleeves and get work done, there's a high degree of, of international cooperation. I mean, one of the one of the uh, examples of that is December 2018. This is, I think. Just one of many examples, but it's a, it's a dramatic one when I think 12 or 15, I can't remember the exact number of countries, all simultaneously indicted and placed sanctions on APT10, which is the, you know, the, the, uh, the hacking organization for the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so immense amount of law enforcement and, and uh, intelligence cooperation there to be able to do that. We're working you know, very well within the quad. Uh, now, I mean, I think uh, India is no longer as reticent about joining this group of Australia, India, Japan, and the United States to promote a free and open Indo-Pacific, especially because of the aggression of, of China. Uh, the U.S. and Japan, I think the alliance has been as strong as ever. It's really sad to see uh, Prime Minister Abe go because he's been a huge architect of a very special relationship with, with Japan. But that's going to that's continue. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and the LDP, that party is, is very strong in terms of uh, it's, it's relationship with the U.S. and the recognition that we have to work together. Japan's taking a lead on you know, infrastructure, infrastructure investment standards, you know, for example. They're taking the lead on, on World Trade Organization actions against China. You know, you, I mean, I, I think there's, there's a lot to celebrate in terms of, uh, of international cooperation among like-minded countries. Uh, I think we have to give that maybe a little bit more airtime you know, to show people, hey, look, we are cooperating and that we are working uh, in, in a way that's mutually beneficial. Um, and then, of course, you know, just we'll continue to to, to rely on, on on Putin and Xi uh, to bring us back together. <laughs> so we're 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 close to out of time, even though the conversation is going very fast for me. I hope as for listeners too. But I, let me end by coming back to something you said in the in the beginning. You pointed out that this is a time when Americans are very divided politically and culturally and other ways, all kinds of reasons. To, to explain that, but we, we, we have different realities. <sighs> Given that yawning divide, can we have two things? Can we have a bipartisan national security policy? And can we have a policy that, doesn't, uh, that, 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 that isn't thrown out with the garbage every time there's a new occupant uh, to the White House, which means that both our allies, to their 
to their chagrin and our enemies to their benefit uh, are seeing a whipsaw in foreign policy. Nothing sustained, nothing coherent. Um, it, it's just every four years we try something different and yeah. nothing works. Yeah. Can, we, can, we come, can we come to a, a national security policy and a foreign policy that both sides essentially buy into and in which we can pursue so that we have, as you say, strategic competence as a nation? Right. This is an immensely important question, Cliff, you know, because, yeah, I mean, it's really the purpose of the book I just wrote, is <laughs> to try to bring us together around, around these issues. I mean, you know, does it, I think we ought to remember, Cliff, I mean, when, 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 when uh, Al-Qaeda attacked our country on September 11th and killed no, nearly 3,000 uh, innocent people, they weren't targeting Democrats or Republicans, right? I mean, they, they were targeting Americans, right? And and, uh, you know, if you're a Democrat or Republican, uh, should that make you, uh, you know, ex- either accept or, 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 or reject the prospect of, of, of the Kim family dictatorship in North Korea having, having the most destructive weapons on Earth? I, I don't think so. You know, I mean, I, I think we ought, to, we ought to be able to come together around these issues. And, of course, it's immensely important because there are no short-term solutions to these long-term problems. And unless we are able to put into place a consistent long-term foreign policy that's flexible, right? Because it always has to adapt to, to, to changes in, in the international environment and, and actions and initiatives of our adversaries and rivals, uh, events that are unforeseen. Uh, but, but the approach, the overall foreign policy approach, I think should be consistent across multiple administrations. When I was in the Jobs National Security Advisor, I tried my best to foster that. I mean, I, I did roundtable discussions with, uh, uh, with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. And what was notable about it, on many of these issues, you had combinations of Republicans and Democrats who were for a policy shift or against it, right? So, so I think that there is, there's a strong prospect for, for putting into place a, a nonpartisan, bipartisan foreign policy. I think certainly we've almost achieved, I think we've already achieved it on China. I mean, I don't, I don't see any turning the clock back to cooperation and engagement uh, away from competition. I hope not, at least. Um, and, and I, so anyway, I think I think your question is is important because it's what we all have to have foremost in our minds. I think I hope Cliff that December 2017 national security strategy might be used, you know, by whatever administration, by a, a second Trump administration or a Biden administration. You know, I, I think you could do word search for America first and take that out of your Biden administration and just do that. No, I'm, I'm biased, you know, because I think these. The policy shifts in that document were, were long overdue and, and appropriate uh, to the world that we're in today. Uh, but but I, I hope that we ha- we have to stop really we have to stop defining a foreign policy of administration as, as based mainly as in opposition to the previous one. And 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 I think whenever we do that, it, what it does is it creates doubts among our allies and partners as well. Right? I mean, uh, our, my Middle East friends, you know my. You know, some some heads of state and, and and foreign ministers, but national security advisors, others, you know, various crown princes and so forth. You know, as as I would talk with them and say, "Hey, why the hell aren't you imposing cost on Russia for enabling Iran across the Middle East?" Right? And the answer was, they're hedging their bets. Right? I mean, right. what what if what if we what if we disengage from the Middle East uh, again? And so they need this relationship. They think with Russia. You know, who opposes who poses in the Middle East as both you know arsonist and fireman, and and uses that to 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 act as a as a as a power broker when when in fact um, 
there ought to be costs imposed on on Russia for what it's done in, in Syria and and more broadly in the region. So so I think a consistent foreign policy is 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 actually an asset in and of itself, right? Uh, and and uh, and it's something we ought to strive for. General, I always learn from talking with you. I always enjoy talking with you. This was no exception. And I look forward to next time. I wish you the best of good luck and, uh, and, and energy for, 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 for the book tour, because it's important, I think, that you communicate with as many people as possible um, through print, through TV, through radio, and all the ways you're doing, because I think your ideas are so important to the future of this country. So until, until next time, thanks so much for all you do. Well, Cliff, thanks for what you do and what FDD does. And, and in particular, I've been so impressed with what Brad Bowman is doing with the Center for Military and Political Power. I mean, the, the, the productivity. I mean, I, I guess you know, there's, there's, there's an upside to a pandemic. But when I, go to, when I go to the FDD website, I learn so much from just the tremendous research and, and the great products you're developing. So what, what a privilege it is to be with you today, to see you at least remotely. Uh, and, uh, and to all the listeners, I hope everybody's well. And thanks for the privilege of being with you. Again, thanks. And as always, thanks also to you, our listeners. We're pleased to have you with us this time and every time here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.